This year at Covenant, our Advent season will work a little differently than at least it has the last few years because the last few years we've had kind of an overarching theme to Advent. Um, this year, for a variety of reasons, including just a different kind of Advent calendar, uh, we don't have an overarching theme. In fact, we'll follow the liturgical calendar and themes for each Sunday and for the week. And the liturgical themes for the Sunday and for the week will be represented by this candle. So today we lit the first candle of Advent, the candle of hope. And hope will be what we are talking about today. And if you received one of your Advent devotions, the theme for this week is around the idea of hope. Next week will be peace and then so forth. So hopefully this is a journey of intentionality based on the liturgical themes of worship and for the week. And um, even though we don't have an overarching theme, uh, we are going to be spending each and every Sunday in the book of Isaiah. So the words of our scripture have already been read that we'll be reflecting on in the sermon from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. Catherine read them just a few minutes ago. Isaiah wrote about 700 years before Jesus was born. It's amazing that this prophet in a time of great trouble and great distress in the life and the history of the nation of Israel was talking so clearly in words that we can easily associate with Jesus and with his birth. And as we've talked about in the past when it comes to Advent, you and I sit in what's kind of an in-between time what Eugene Peterson describes this as, which is that we are both looking backwards at the historical birth of Jesus, but we are also looking forward and awaiting his return. So there is a sense for us that we can relate to Isaiah because this scripture passage Catherine read isn't just kind of Christmassy. There's about the blood of the oppressors and the trampling boots and all this other stuff that doesn't necessarily feel like, you know, a Hallmark Christmas film, and it's not. And then you sort of move forward, and uh, Isaiah was writing at a time when the people needed to hear that. They needed to hear that the promise of God was real for them in their time of struggle. And for the struggles we have as a people and as individuals, we too are looking forward to the promise of the one who is coming and shall come again. So we are both looking back and looking forward and today talking about the idea of hope. For the sermon today, what I'm primarily going to do is just tell you a story about what Advent hope means to me. And the point of a story, Jesus often when Jesus taught, taught in stories. Now, I'm not about to compare myself and my teaching to Jesus' teaching, but he taught in stories. And the point when someone teaches in a story is not to just hear it as a historical account of a certain event for a certain family, right? For example, when Jesus told the parable, the story of the prodigal son, which we did a series on here uh, in the spring uh, earlier this year, six months ago, and we heard about this prodigal that goes off and wastes half the family fortune uh, in a distant land. And then this self-righteous older brother that's locked in his own resentment and, and kind of legalism and the love of the father for them both. The point of Jesus telling that story and when we reflected on it here, the point of it was not to sit there and go, oh, well, how interesting for that family, right? Like hopefully the hearers that when Jesus heard that and when we heard that, we saw ourselves in the story. We interacted with the story in several different ways and it hit us at different moments at different times. It was a living thing for us. That's my hope for this story that I want to share with you today. That if we leave here going, oh, well, this was the story for Thomas and his family of what hope and Advent looks like, that's a fail. 
The question is, what does this mean for you? That we are people of hope, that this candle burns for us all this time of year. The story is based on our Christmas Eve journey as a family when we were living in Atlanta before moving out here to Austin. And it involves a family that if you've been here for a while that you have heard me mention before, sometimes I worry I might mention too often, a couple that was in our small group, Steve and Cheryl Hayner. Steve was a mentor to me. He was one of my best friends I've ever had in the world. And this church got to go through an interesting journey with the Hayner family uh, because a few weeks after arriving here, Steve was diagnosed, some of you will remember, with terminal pancreatic cancer. And he passed away very suddenly during my first year here. So you all got to take that journey with me of losing someone very, very dear to me. And I'm grateful for how you did that with me and my family. But this is a story about our experience with the Hainers on Christmas Eve, because how Christmas Eve worked for our family is that we worshipped in a community and a church that had one worship service on Christmas Eve. One. You'll notice at Covenant there are more than one service on Christmas Eve, which is fun for a pastor uh, to to go through. Um, There was one service uh, at our church in Atlanta. I don't know if I mentioned it was one, one time. That was it. It was done at that point. But enough about that. We, we had one service. It was at five o'clock in the afternoon, and then you would go to dinner afterwards. And so we developed a tradition of joining Steve and Cheryl and their children and grandchildren at their home for Christmas Eve dinner after our one worship service that we had on Christmas Eve. Now, the thing you need to know about the Hainers and Christmas Eve is that Christmas was a huge deal, like it is for many of our families. And what that meant for them is that they had usually at least two Christmas trees up in their house, fully decorated. They had nativity sets everywhere. It was just sort of a, 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 a big production. And, and their primary nativity set was in their front room, their front living room, that you would see when you would walk into. The thing that was different, if you look closely at that nativity set, was that something was missing. There were the figures, you know, the wooden figures of the nativity. There were the shepherds, and there were cattle, and there were, they were lowing. Uh, and there were, uh, you know, Mary and Joseph was there, and there was a manger, but the manger was empty. There was no baby Jesus in the manger during Advent. Now, in that house, in our house, that meant that the dog had eaten baby Jesus and chewed it up. But in the Hainer house, it was a very intentional act. And so, uh, you know, people would notice, like, well, it's not Christmas. Jesus hasn't come yet. And so the manger was empty. The second thing you need to know when we're talking about a Christmas Eve for a family is that Steve was many things, but of anything, he was a very particular person. And by particular, I mean a very detail-oriented person individual, always um, focusing on intimate, intricate little details in all situations. Example, because some of you are like this and we love you anyway, but like when you would set the air conditioning in Steve's house, it was always set to an exact temperature at 75, not 76, because that could be too warm and not 74 because then we're wasting money, but 75 is the exact right temperature for things to be. He paid very close attention to that. Or, or, or example, um, the, the dishwasher was a big deal to Steve, okay? Um, you don't want to waste water. And so we need to make sure that the dishwasher is totally full in the most efficient, packed way before we turn it on. And so no one was allowed to go around the dishwasher except Steve because he had the most amazing ability, like a Tetris set, just to 
fit everything together so there was not room for one more spoon in there and he was very focused on the dishwasher. Again, some of you were that way. If your spouse is looking at you right now, you are that way. But all of us know someone who's like that. He was very detailed. I can remember one year, one fall, walking into his office when he was the president of Columbia Theological Seminary where Beth and I both went to seminary and, and we were going to lunch and he was studying something at his desk and like focusing on it. And I walked in, I said, Steve, what are you, what, what's going on? And he's like, oh, I'm wrestling with this thing. And I was like, well, you know, what is it? And he said, well, come, come over here, come look at this. And he's staring at his, at his two pieces of paper on his desk and he goes, this is the original template for the branding and color scheme for Columbia Seminary. It came to us from a graphic designer. It's a certain blue and a certain yellow. Do you see this? And I said, yeah, I see this. And he pulled out this, and he goes, this is our Christmas card that we're sending out this year. I can't tell if the blues are exactly the same. And that I'm not certain if the designer of the Christmas card got the exact blue. And he starts studying it under this light. He goes, take a look at it. Do you think it's the same? I know it's blue, but is it the exact blue? That, you know, and so you're looking at it, he goes, what do you think? And you're like, I can't believe we're two adults having this conversation, like in an actual way. So what I mean is, he is a very detail-oriented, very specific person. And on Christmas Eve, Steve had one duty. It was one duty that he had done for decades with his children and now his grandchildren and we were a part of. And that was that Steve was in charge of making sure baby Jesus made it into the manger on Christmas Eve, okay? That was his job. And so what would happen is he was very focused on it, and at the end of the meal, Steve would sort of slip away from the table, and then he would come back in at the very end of the meal, and he would come in and say, guys, guess what? The manger's filled. Baby Jesus is here. Jesus has come. He's alive. Everybody get up and come see. And we'd do this every year, and we would all stand up from the table, and we'd walk into the front room where the nativity set was, and sure enough, a Christmas miracle had happened, and Jesus is in the manger, and we would gather around, and we would all sing happy birthday to Jesus. And then Cheryl would walk in during happy birthday with a birthday cake with candles going and everything else, and we would blow out the candles on the birthday cake to celebrate Jesus' birthday, and we would cut it up, and the birthday cake was dessert for dinner. That's what they did. That was the tradition we were invited into for Christmas Eve. And it was beautiful and it was wonderful. And so my children and Steve and Cheryl's grandchildren, when Jesus would arrive, it was like, oh, he's here again. And do it. Until one year when my oldest daughter, I think she was seven years old when this happened, on Christmas Day, the day after, walked in to sit down with me and Beth and said, Mommy and Daddy, I need to talk to you. Now, even though she was seven, Miriam is a very particular child, in some ways very much like Steve, very detail-oriented. And so when she calls a meeting, even though she's seven, it's like you have your notepad and you're like, we, is a quorum present? Yes, a quorum is present. We're gonna follow Robert's <laughs> rules and kind of move forward. And she said, I think I know the truth about Christmas. Now, Beth and I at this point are kind of looking at each other she goes, I think it's Steve who puts baby Jesus in the main There's <laughs> part of you like, Whew. and you're like, do you think so? She goes, the last two years, 
he gets up from the table and leaves and comes back and tells us that Jesus has come and I think he puts baby Jesus in the manger. I don't know if you all know the truth. (laughs) But next year, I'm watching him. (laughs) At that point, we adjourned the meeting and we went on with the rest of our Christmas day. Now, most seven-year-olds move on in 23 seconds to something else, but 11 months later, as we were entering into Advent the next year, Miriam had not forgotten. And this is a true story. I had to call Steve at the beginning of December to say, hey, we may have a problem. Because Miriam, he goes, it'll be fine. I'm like, I don't think it's going to be fine because you don't do well when your world gets messed with. And she is on this thing. He goes, it'll work out. I'm sure she'll forget about it. And you're like, it's not, you know, you could just see these like forces getting ready to collide. And sure enough, we had our one worship, I mentioned we had one worship service on Christmas Eve, and then we left the worship service, and we drove to the Hainer's house, and we walked in, and Steve and Cheryl and their children and their grandchildren are all there, and I've got like anxiety going, and Miriam walks up, and Steve is collecting coats, and she gets right in front of him and stands there looking at him. He goes into the bedroom to put the coats down, she follows him into the bedroom. He comes back out, she comes back out. He goes to get drinks for people, she follows him in, follows him back out while he serves each person. We literally had to tell her it was okay for him to go into the toilet without her going in as well. But she did stay by the door like a century so that when he came back out, she was on him again. We sat down for dinner and she sat across the table from him toying with her food, watching them. And when he got up to refill people's drinks, she was up like a shot, following him into the kitchen, following him back out, serving seconds. And it was like fear for me, right? Like what is about to happen? As the meal is winding down and you kind of, everybody's like, this is the moment. What's like, Steve, all of a sudden, leans across the table and says, Miriam. Miriam, come with me. I want to show you something. My then eight-year-old slides out from the table and walks around with him, and they go outside of the dining room. And I'm laying 50-50 odds that he is locking her in the coat closet at that (laughs) moment. But a few minutes later, the two of them come back into the dining room and my eight-year-old says, guys, get up, get up, come see, come look, Jesus is here, Jesus has come, Jesus is alive, the manger's not empty anymore, everybody come. And we all stood up and we joined Steve and Miriam and we walked into the living room together and we sang happy birthday to Jesus and we enjoyed birthday cake and it was wonderful. And the next year, they two of them got up and did it again. The next year, two years after that, was our last Christmas Eve in Atlanta. It was not public yet that we were moving to Austin, but we had a pretty good idea that it was going to happen. The Hainers had been a part of that discernment process with us, and they knew it was our last Christmas Eve. And so it was an especially poignant moment when, for the third time, Miriam and Steve got up from the table and left and came back in to announce to us that Jesus was present. What we didn't know at the time was that while I moved out here two months later in March, that at the beginning of April, Steve would be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. 
for which there was nothing that they could do. As the date came for Beth and the girls who moved out here in June, if you were here at that time, you remember I moved out here and started and the girls finished school. So we lived apart for April and May. They moved out here in June. When they moved out here and it was clear what was happening, the last thing the night before Beth and Miriam and Hannah flew out to Austin that they did was they went to say goodbye to Steve and Cheryl at their house. And for both of our girls, we wanted them at some level, even though they were nine and seven, to be able to interact with the fact that they were probably never going to see Steve again. And we felt like it was only fair that they understood that that was the case. And I wasn't there, but apparently that in the midst of this meeting, Miriam announced that she would like to have a conversation with Steve one-on-one without anyone else present. And so Beth... Cheryl and Hannah left the room, and Miriam's given me permission to share today what she and Steve talked about. And what they talked about, among other things, was that Miriam looked at Steve and said, Steve, I don't want you to worry. I'll make sure next year baby Jesus makes it into the manger. Don't worry. I'll make sure that he makes it into the manger. And every year since then, Miriam does. At some point on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, my oldest daughter walks in to where Beth and Hannah and I are gathered and says to us, guys, guess what? Jesus has come. Jesus has arrived. Jesus is alive. Jesus is real. Everybody, get up. Come around. And we gather in our home. And all of a sudden, in our nativity set where the manger has been empty, baby Jesus is there. And we sing happy birthday to Jesus. And I need you to know that in the midst of my Christmas celebration, there is not a time that means more to me than that moment. It is a time of joy and rejoicing and memories and relationships that meant the world to us and love and cancer and loss and all of it is mixed together in that announcement, in that moment. But if it is a moment of anything for me, it is a declaration of hope. Hope that this year my 13-year-old will walk in to announce to us that Jesus has come. That Jesus is alive. That the one came and will come again in whose name love always triumphs over hate. That the one has come and will come again in whose name life always triumphs over death. That the one came and will come again who promises that justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. And that is hope. Truth. May that hope dwell in you and in us this day, this week, and always. Hallelujah. And amen. Let's pray. Lord, may the hope of the one who is coming 
live in us. May it live in us all. Amen.